0: This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen, and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Chapter 6 My Weimar Days The summer of 1901 I spent in delightful Weimar as one of the disciples of, to me, the greatest living pianist Ferruccio Busoni. It had been my keen desire to be directed in my musical studies by him, and so when I received his affirmative reply to my letter asking if I might attend his classes, I felt as though I could shout my joy from the housetops. At the invitation of the Grand Duke of Weimar, we had taken Franz Liszt's place, and Weimar once more had its Meisterschule for piano playing old world Weimar, with its quiet squares, is rich in its associations with German art and literature, and its atmosphere is very different from that of busy, up-to-day Berlin. Here the great giant of German literature, Goethe, lived fifty years of his life. Schiller came here towards the end of his days at Goethe's invitation. Goethe's house, in the Goetheplatz, is the shrine of many pilgrims. In one room is the piano on which young Mendelssohn played. Cronach's great picture of the crucifixion, in which he introduced the faces of Martin Luther, Melanchthon, and Bugenhagen, hangs in the Stadtkirche. In Liszt's vine-covered house, the pupil room is the same as when the great master taught there. There was much for me to see and study at Weimar besides my music. Also, I came in touch with a broader spirit of what I had best call bohemian bon camaraderie than I had met in Berlin. It was the kind of bohemianism that I frankly delighted in, though I may as well confess that it did not appeal in the same way to certain old-fashioned inhabitants who had either never possessed youthful spirits or had forgotten the days when they had, but of this more presently. The most delightful relations existed between Busoni and his pupils. To us, he was something much more than a great master of his art. We really might have been his children, and when our work was done, we seemed to share quite naturally in his family life, with his wife, the dearest of women, and his two beautiful children. And what a mixture! American, Soch, Canadian, Russian, Servian, Austrian, French, Italian, and other nationalities. The German tongue was our Esperanto. We devoted our mornings to hard study. Busoni was an inspiring master. On two afternoons in the week, Tuesday and Friday, we gathered at the Tempel Herrenhaus for an informal kind of concert. There was no fixed program, but though there was a delightful spontaneity about these afternoons, we only gave of our very best. In fact, in one respect, they were not unlike a Quakers meeting, when only those who feel inspired rise to speak. But there the comparison ceases. We were really like a very large happy family. On other afternoons, when lunch was done, we would go to Busoni's beautiful villa for afternoon coffee. No ceremony, no formality. We were sure of friendliness and simple welcome. Time had a way of skipping on these delightful afternoons, and we generally stayed to tea as well. At other times, Busoni and his wife would come to us or perhaps make an expedition to one of those open-air spots beloved by germans and take our coffee there it might be to the beautiful lawn of the temple House, or to the belvedere chateau delightful places abound around weimar indeed we loved our master for the kindly simple nature that went hand in hand with his wonderful brilliancy in art and no one delighted more in our affection and respect for him than his dear wife. My memories of those Weimar days are like a breath of clean, fresh air. This kind of personal intimacy between master and pupils is characteristic of German student life. Professors are not afraid that their influence will be lessened or their dignity abated by revealing themselves human. "'Somehow I cannot picture so easily an Oxford Don unbending in the same way, "'and an Oxford Don playing cat and mouse after dusk with his pupils. "'Shades of dead and gone vice-chancellors. "'Ought I to whisper it? "'I have played that game in the squares of Weimar "'with a band that included a professor and his wife.' "'Worse still, certain prim and formal old ladies complained to the authorities "'and the police were doubled in certain quarters "'to prevent the possibility of any repetition of such a terrible offence. "'We certainly did disregard some conventions. "'Another cause of complaint was our whistle. "'Instead of climbing up many stairs to a friend's room, "'we would whistle a two-noted peculiar signal from the street.' It saved time, and was part of the bon camaraderie that made those days delightful. Sometimes, as we wandered through the squares and streets, a bohemian band of brothers and sisters, we would all link arms, and take two short steps with one foot, and a long one with the other, and so continue. Hopla! It was just glad spirits asserting themselves spontaneously, and if we did behave like children let loose, I, for one, have had no regrets since. Then we would have supper parties in our rooms, after which we would see one another home, a somewhat lengthy process, delayed by hoopla and cat and mouse. A quiet, moonlit square, a ring of us linked hand to hand, now closing in and shutting out the pursuer, now opening out to permit the pursued to dodge and thread away among us. Laughter excitement and unfeigned happiness that is my remembrance of cat and mouse as we played it till those prim shocked inhabitants put the police on our wicked tracks but perhaps we had kept them awake but those delightful free and easy days of hard study and bon camaraderie came to a close all too soon the autumn of 1901 found me back in berlin I was continuing to give rhythmic, physical expression to my fancies and the inspiration of silent music or the memories of picture or nature. But I was still keeping my own confidence. My joy in trying to give expression to my idea seemed to make the idea grow, and soon it was dominating my thoughts. Perhaps of all the great painters whose works I have studied, Botticelli has influenced me the most— his lyrical imagination, his love of the wind, and all things that the wind stirs—trees, draperies, floating hair, so wonderfully expressed in his paintings, and his pure love of the human form, never defiled by a descent to meretricious art, had deeply impressed themselves upon me. But if he inspired pose in those formative days— I was thinking more of the Greek dancing girls when I turned my thoughts to my draperies. On those lines, I fashioned my first dress. I had no doubts as to the rightness and truth of my idea, but I did experience dark moments when I wondered if I were the fitting person to give it expression. I had made the acquaintance of many distinguished artistic and literary men and women in Berlin and among these, Marcel Rémy, the Belgian composer, musical critic, and savant. But as yet I did not know him well enough to count him a friend, deeply as I respected and admired his sparkling talents and his unerring sensitive taste, and I little dreamed when I thought of mentioning my idea to him that he would one day compose the music for the vision of Salomé.